Will is what makes the Cromeria scary, even for us. Who is this Will, and how do we stop him? Kip, focus. Sorry, go ahead. Will is just what you think it is. You impose your will on the world. You will magic to happen. Will can cover over the gaps in flawed drafting. That's especially important for flailers. All men drafters and half of the women drafters who aren't super chromats. Well, most men, huh? The term was a bit nasty, really. A little bit, we're better than you are, you helpless hacks. You try, we succeed. But that was how the Chromeria worked, wasn't it? Everything was about power and dominance. Right. Flailers. Those sad sacks. Pitiful. Look, Kip, you don't have to like it, but you have to deal with it. And you'll probably do better if you don't have a chip on your shoulder about everything. It's not like back home, because guess what? We don't have a home now. The Chromeria is all we get, and we've got it good, so grow up. Right. Sorry. Oh, no. I'm sorry. That... I don't know... I guess I'm still adjusting to this whole life myself. There's a hierarchy to everything at the Cromeria Kip, and it's not easy to adjust to. I don't even know if it's good to adjust to it. But once you know your place, you can figure out how you're supposed to deal with everyone else, even people you don't know. It does simplify things. I just... After the last three years as a monochrome in an obscure colour and a Tyrian on top of that, I never liked the whole hierarchy. But I've finally come to terms with my place in it and I was almost finished with my training and ready to head out into my shitty life. Now I'm a bichrome and everything's different overnight. I'm going to have to stay at the Cromeria for another couple of years and my life will be totally different. People see me now. I guess you know all about having everything changed in a blink. The thing is, I like my new life. I have new clothes, jewellery, an allowance, a room slave. I guess what I'm seeing is that maybe I didn't hate the hierarchy, maybe I just hated being at the bottom of it. So every time I enjoy something, it feels like confirmation that I'm a hypocrite. I'll promise to make your life as difficult as possible. If it'll make you happy. Cliff hit his shoulder playfully, but it nailed a sensitive spot. You're a real life saver, Kip. I guess I should take my own advice and start dealing with how things are. You're the prism's son, I'm your tutor. I shouldn't hit you, or Holem. You're the prism's son, how dare I? No! <laughs> Liv, swear to me you won't... I... What were you going to say, Kip? I've been in love with you since I can remember. Right. I couldn't bear losing my last anchor to Recton. You're the only one who knew me before all this. Great. Good job making it seem like it's totally impersonal. I don't care about you. I just care about Recton. I mean, Liv, you know me. You're... You're my friend? That sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? What if she's never thought of you as a friend? You're from Recton, too. Impersonal again, damn! I need someone to talk to, and I've always admired you. Admired? Like she's a painting? I mean, I appreciate. Appreciate? Kind of the same as admire, isn't it? Like she's a good cook? Or Holmes balls? This is agony. A way out. Not appreciate her, but appreciate how she does something. Uh, I appreciate how you... How she what's... How she looks in that one too small green shirt she used to... Shit. 
have always been so nice to me. Now you're the pleading, awkward child again. Well done. Kip Silvertongue, they ought to call you. I'm never going to speak to another woman again. Kip could barely stand to look at Liv after that performance, but she waited until he met her eyes. Leary. Why, Kip, are you flirting with me? It was like Kip had stepped into that nightmare where he walked to the Midsummer's Dance on the Green, barely registering the curious glances until he stepped up on the stage and the music stopped, every dancer missed their steps, and everyone turned to look at him. And then he noticed he was naked. And then everyone started laughing, pointing, making jokes. No, this was worse. He wasn't going to wake from this. All the blood had drained from his face. Evernight, it had drained from everywhere. He had no idea where it all had gone, but it had taken his ability to speak with it. Kip, I'm kidding. <laughs> Not often that you're left with nothing to say. If you don't watch it, I'll ruffle your hair. Well, that's it. I'm shaving my head. <laughs> enough, enough. No more digressions. I'll never teach you anything if we keep on like this. So, Will, not the Badman. See? At least I remember when we got off track. Not so fast. First, Kip, you've got a deal. I'd love to be your friend. Maybe we can remind each other every now and again where we came from. I'd like that a lot. Now, finally, Will. Will covers a multitude of flaws, just as... Love covers a multitude of sins. Both Kips and Liv's heads snapped around. It was Master Danavis, Liv's father, alive. Father? Father! Liv jumped up and ran to her father and threw herself into his arms. <laughs> oh, I heard you were dead. I didn't believe it, but I was so... Corbin closed his eyes, just holding his daughter. Kip wondered if there was some way he could escape. And go where? This is my room. But after a few moments, Corvin gently pushed his daughter back. I am surprisingly durable. You look more lovely than ever, Oliviana. I'm all cry. <laughs> Perhaps even a smidge more beautiful than your mother. A claim I'd not have tolerated until this day, seeing the truth with my own eyes. Ah, oh, Liv, she'd be so proud of you. Father. Don't you think she's beautiful, Kip? <laughs> uh, uh, Seriously, if embarrassment were a muscle, I'd be huge. Father! <laughs> my day wouldn't have been complete without my daughter thinking I was embarrassing. <laughs> Your pardon, Kip. <laughs> Kip surprised even himself with his eloquence. It's wonderful to see you well, Kip. Kip Guile. Liv. Kip. I'd love to catch up with both of you, but the prism has just given me work. Work? I've been put in charge of the defense of Garriston, under only the prism himself. What? You're a general again? Not as enviable a position as you might think. A softer bed doesn't make for easier sleep when ten thousand lives rest in your shaking hands. King Haradul's army will be here in about five days. They'll attack the day after Midsummer's. If we're to hold this city... I'll have to devise a more brilliant defense than I've ever seen. I need to go get some things in motion now, but Liv, I'll come find you sometime after midnight. Kip, maybe tomorrow? I'd like that, Master Danavis. General Danavis. Yes. Hadn't noticed how much I'd miss that, despite everything. Say, Liv, 
Do you know anything about Karis White Oak? Only blood forced a blackguard, astounding fighter, bichrome who was nearly a poly, maybe the fastest drafter on the Jaspers. Why? She was captured by King Horridul. The prison won't admit it, but I know it's going to drive him to distraction. He cares a great deal about her. I doubt it would be possible to rescue her, not with the limited assets I have, but I'm going to learn all I can to see if there's any hope at all. And just like that, a stupid, mad, impossible idea took root. Wake up, Kip. My Lord Prism! It felt like it had barely been ten minutes since Kip went to bed. Get dressed. We're going for a walk. Gavin turned toward Commander Iron Fist, who was standing by the door. You're invited. A grin flashed over Iron Fist's face, visible only because his teeth were so starkly white against his ebony skin. He would have accompanied them regardless. Kip pulled on his clothes. Within minutes, they were walking the streets of Garriston. Kip was playing his part of the gawker once more, still a little overwhelmed by being in a city of this size, despite that it wasn't nearly as impressive as the Jaspers. The construction, of course, wasn't all towering minarets. Like back home, the buildings were square, with flat roofs where people could relax in the evenings or sleep during the unbearably hot nights. Even with the sea breezes, it got stiflingly hot here. But the buildings here weren't solely the stone construction that was used in Recton. Interspersed with the stone, often on the same building, were mud bricks and date palm wood, all stuck together with gypsum mortar. Even the whitewash, helpful in cooling homes and preserving the mortar and mud bricks from the sun, was applied haphazardly. The buildings were, however, three and four stories tall. Only a few buildings in Recton rose to three stories. People in the streets looked dirty, and there was garbage everywhere. Gavin, Kip noticed, was wearing a worn faded cloak with a single button holding it closed in front. Disguising his status? Indeed, Commander Iron Fist was getting more stares than either Kip or Gavin. Hey, Iron Fist, you think you could be a little less conspicuous? Gavin traced his eyes from Iron Fist's feet up, until he had to tilt his head back to take in the huge, hugely muscled man. Never mind. Where are we going? You'll see. How are your studies? I don't know that anything I've done yet counts as studying. Liver's barely beginning to explain how Drafter's dependence on Will makes for a lot of dangerous men when her father came in. What she said? Well, nothing. I didn't really understand it. And she didn't get the chance to explain. Gavin turned into an alley to help them bypass the crowded streets surrounding the water market. Very few men are super chromats, Kip. Even I'm not a super chromat, though Dazen was. So apparently it runs in the family. If you want to draft something that will endure, you have to draft the exact middle of the spectrum you're working with. You want to make a blue sword that will last years after you draft it? It has to be perfect. And of course, you have to keep it out of light. But that's a different topic. Because men, aside from the few exceptions, can't do that, can't draft in the exact middle of a color, not can't keep it out of the light, obviously. <coughs> that is, if men want to make anything permanent, they have to add will. Makes it sound like it's meat you add to stew, doesn't it? Hmm. Uh, I don't teach much, obviously. Let me try this. Gavin appeared perfectly heedless of the dark corners they were passing and the acquisitive eyes that followed them. But then, once any acquisitive eyes alit on Iron Fist, they found other things to study in a hurry. Every time you draft, 
You use your will. You have to decide that something totally outlandish, weird, unnatural seeming is going to happen, and you're going to make it happen. In other words, you decide to do magic. Now, the more outlandish it is, the harder it is to believe you can really do it. Or, to put it another way, the more will it takes. You with me? Makes sense so far. Good. Now, blue sword. Gavin lifted a hand from beneath his clothes. His hand was solid blue, and as Kip watched, blue luxon blossomed from it, gelled, solidified, hardened into the form of a blue sword. Gavin handed it to Kip. Kip took it. Feeling self-conscious as they passed through an intersection with another alley, and he was bearing the blade like he was following it to his destiny. Uh... Then he felt the hilt go slippery. A moment later, the blade drooped, broke off the hilt of its own weight, and splattered on the dirty cobblestones of the alley. The same happened moments later to the hilt in Kip's hand, leaving only that gritty blue dust. Ugh, what's that dust? A later lesson. I'm having trouble teaching the basics as it is. The point for you is to imagine I drafted you a plow instead of a sword. Great. It works while the drafter is at your farm, but ten minutes after he leaves, all you've got is dust. Literally. Not helpful. This is why superchromats are heavily recruited by all satrapies. So they can make plows? Not all magic is for fun and dismemberment, kid. In fact, most drafters spend their whole lives doing practical things like making plows. For every artist, there's ten men who repair roofs with green luxon. Anyway, men, and the women who are lucky enough to be superchromats, can cover their failings with will. You mean just by trying harder? Pretty much. Doesn't sound so bad. So they try harder. Liv was making men among drafters sound like slaves compared to the freeborn. More like dogs, I'd say. Huh? Well, they are second class because using will constantly wears you. It's exhausting. And will isn't just effort, it's belief and effort together. So if you need belief to do magic, what happens to the man who loses all his belief in himself? He can't do magic? Exactly. That's half of what all the hierarchy among drafters is about. Satraps and satrapas treat drafters like they're Orholum's gift to the world, not just because they are Orholum's gift, but because if the drafter doesn't believe he's special and you call on him to do magic, he won't be able to do it. Drafter who can't draft? Useless. Oh, I never thought of that. Of course, it's a circle that spirals on itself. You're a satrap. You've paid a fortune for Bichrome Drafter. Well, now you've invested so much in him that you can't afford for him to fail you. So you have to reinforce his feelings of superiority and pamper him, give him slaves and so forth. It makes the more powerful drafters more and more difficult to manage. <coughs> uh, Commander, you have something to add to this discussion? A little dust in my throat. Apologies. Problem with Will is, we think that the more Will a man or woman expends in their life, the faster they die. Or it could merely be that men or women with great will tend to draft a lot more. Either way, their careers are spectacular and short. It's probably why male drafters don't tend to live as long as women do, expending will all the time in order to have their drafting be useful. Side effect is that among the most powerful drafters, we have a lot of people with titanic will. Or to put it bluntly, a lot of arrogant assholes, especially the men and madmen. Delusional people tend to believe in what they're doing. Makes them powerful. 
So I'm going to be spending my time with crazy, arrogant bastards? Well, many of them are of the finest blood. Oh, that's right. I'm the only bastard around here. I thought being a drafter was going to be fun. Grunts never get to skull. Grunts? Grunts, mundies, norms, grubbers, clods, shovel slingers, blinders, dulls, scrubs, mouthbreakers, slumps, the benighted. There's lots of names. Most of them not as nice as those. They all mean the same thing. Non-drafters. So what about you? They finally left the alleys. They crossed a wide, peaked stone bridge over the Umber River. You mean, what nasty names do they call me? No! <laughs> Your eyes don't, uh... Hey, though. So does that mean you can draft as much as you want? I tire like anyone, but yes. For a time, I can draft every day as much as I can handle, and it won't burn me out. Someday, most likely five years from now, I will start to lose colors. It will take about a year, and then I'll die. Why five years from now? It always happens on multiples of seven from when a prison begins his reign. I've made it 16 years, so I have until 21. Long time for a prison. Oh. Why multiples of seven? Because there's seven colors, seven virtues, seven satrapies. Because all Holem likes the number seven. Truth is, no one knows. They walked on through streets swelling with people starting their morning errands and those eager to get as much work done as possible before the heat of the day. They approached a long line of workers bottlenecked at the Lover's Gate, heading out to work outside the city. Though Kip didn't even see him draft, Gavin turned and handed him a green rock. Not a rock, green Luxon, perfectly the size to fit in Kip's palm. Kip took it, confused. You bring your specs? Gavin handed Kip a square board, not a foot on each side, perfectly white. Kip produced the spectacles and smiled weakly. I have a bad feeling about what he's going to tell me next. Your turn. You can have lunch, or dinner, or possibly breakfast, when you make a green Luxon ball of your own. You've got the spectacles, a white reflector, plenty of sun, and an example. I couldn't make it easier if I tried. But I need skill, will, source, and still. I don't have skill, any skill, at all. And how do you think you get skill? Skill is the most overrated of the requisites. Will covers a multitude of flaws. Kip hadn't even had breakfast, and he wasn't going to get to eat until he made a magic ball. Fantastic. They came upon the back of the line. Gavin glanced at Commander Ironfist. Looks like a wagon broke down. It's blocking half the gate. Gavin swept a hand forward, as in, you go first. Commander Ironfist went first, and the impatient farmers and craftsmen parted easily for him. Or at least, those who looked furious at being pushed aside quickly hid it once they saw the size of the man towering over them. We are going to help. Sure, you Perean scum. Gavin stopped and scanned the crowd for who'd spoken. As men met his eyes and saw those prismatic orbs, they quieted, confused, stunned. You can have my help, or you can have my enmity. Gavin unbuttoned the nondescript cloak and threw it back over his shoulders, exposing the almost blindingly white coat and shirt he wore underneath, worked with gold thread and jewels. He walked on, and Kip scooted close to him. The crowd parted around them. In a minute, they were at the front of the line. At least a dozen men were straining to move a wagon. Apparently the horses had spooked and veered to the side as they passed through the gate. The wagon's wheel had smashed into the gate's support. Here, actually, the lover's hair. The men were straining to lift the wagon by sheer brute strength. 
with a few using long poles to try to crank the mass off the wall. We're gonna have to bring up an empty wagon and unload this before we've got a chance. Bring an empty wagon? From where? Through that whole mess behind us? It'll take hours. You all are gonna have to use the other gates today. What? I didn't do this. I'm just trying to fix it. You have a better idea? I do. Oh, sure, you smartly... Your prison! Kevin gestured to the man to step back. They did, some in awe, others more peeved, some hostile. He simply walked to where the wagon was smashed against the wall. I see why you had trouble, but I have a few extra tools available to me. I need ropes! Gavin held a hand up over his head, and a bar of yellow luxon formed in his hand, and snapped out in both directions until it was three times the height of a man. He handed it to one of the stunned workers. You and you get this in position. I'll need you to lever the wagon off the wall. The man bobbed his head. He and the other man started jamming the pole as deep between the wall and wagon as they could. Gavin walked as far around the wagon as he could, sending out thin jets of Luxon in a number of places under the axles. Now! Leverman strained and moved the wagon less than a hand's breadth. They relaxed and set their shoulders to try again. Not necessary. You gave me enough already. Well done. And indeed, there was Luxon even behind the wagon, encasing the hole in a shimmering web of various colors, mostly greens and yellows. Gavin rolled his shoulders, braced himself, pointed at the arching Luxon and stone of the gate, and shot out a stream of blue and yellow. In moments, it congealed into a pulley. He took coils of rope from a nearby farmer and shot out another pole, anchoring one end of the rope to the ceiling. Then he threaded the rest of the rope through the pulley. He pulled some slack into the rope between the fixed pulley and the attached end and drafted a free-rolling pulley onto that, which he then fixed to the web of Luxon around the wagon. He beckoned the farmer, apparently the wagon's owner, and tossed him the rest of the rope. It'll still take all of you helping. Please tell me he isn't designing those off the top of his head. He's not. You'd be surprised how often wagons break down when your army is pursuing another army across half the seven satrapies. I've seen him lift heavier loads by himself, albeit with lots more pulleys. Which meant the real question was why Gavin didn't just do this himself. He could draft Luxon better than any hemp rope. He could draft another four pulleys and make the burden so light that he could lift the wagon himself. But as soon as Kip asked himself, he knew. Gavin was building rapport with the townsfolk. If he marched in and did it all himself, they'd be awed, but they'd not be a part of it. This way, he was simply enabling them to help themselves. His power might still be awesome, but it was power in service of them. The men heaved on the lines. <laughs> As the wagon lifted off the ground, it swung away from the wall. Gavin and a few others braced it, so it didn't swing wildly and hurt anyone. Finally, they stabilized the swinging. Okay, hold it there! Then he slid under the wagon, scooting on his back under the broken back axle. That was no light wagon, and the men were straining to hold the load. These men of a city Gavin's army had nearly obliterated 16 years ago. And yet, Commander Ironfist didn't seem perturbed. Aren't you worried they'll drop it on purpose? No. Kip was, but Gavin appeared unafraid. He grabbed the ends of the broken axle and brought them together as close as he could. 
It was no use, they were twisted and bent, but Gavin brought them as close as he could and then bound them by degrees with yellow. The wagon wheel followed in short order. He repaired what he could and replaced what he couldn't. He scooted out and gestured. The men lowered the wagon and it settled on the road, easily taking the weight. the farmer on the shoulder. Those will be good for about three days. Then you'll need to get real repairs, but it'll hold you until then. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you ever so much. I thought they were going to lynch me for sure. A day's lost wages for all these men. You saved me, sir. You're welcome. Now get these horses hitched up. Only as he saw the smiles did Kip understand fully what Gavin had done. With 10 minutes of effort and a little subtlety, he had turned an annoyance into an opportunity to win over not just the men he'd helped, but all those to whom they would repeat the story. The incongruity of the prism himself joining in the starkly physical labor of lifting and moving and stabilizing the wagon, heedless of soiling his expensive white clothing, joining them muscle to muscle, communicated something to these men. A ruler who would sweat with them was a ruler who might understand men who won their bread by the sweat of their brow. That man was easier to trust than some dandy in silks who might be all kinds of noble smart, but didn't know the real world. That's why you hardly ever hear anyone call him Emperor Guile. At heart, he's not an emperor. He's a promachos. It's not always the best way to fight, but it's his only way. That's why men will die for him. Why didn't he stay promachos then? I've missed a dozen reasons. Truth is, I don't know. With a gesture, completely for show of course, Gavin released all the Luxem and it dissolved, shimmering, until it was nothing but dust. He nodded to his fellow laborers and then gestured for Kip to follow. Kip joined Gavin and walked through the gate. You have that green Luxem ball for me, Ed? What? I can't believe I, I didn't even have a chance. Gavin was grinning. Look, Kip, gullible's written on the sky. Huh? Where? <sighs> A little slow at the starting line, but watch out when he picks up speed. Reminds me of someone. Gavin Smirk told Kip the someone was himself. He put his hand on Kip's shoulder. Kip felt a thousand things he couldn't identify at that touch. That touch claimed him. That's my boy. His mother had said those words a few times, always after Kip messed up. She'd never said them with pride. Gavin Guile wasn't just a great man. He was a good man. Kip would do anything for him. General, I need to speak with you. Liv Danavis had found her father on the roof of the Travertine Palace. Checklists and reports spread all over a table. It wasn't yet dawn, and he was bundled against the chill of the morning. He was standing, ignoring his work for the moment, his butt against the edge of his table, looking toward the east. General this morning, not father. <laughs> I must be in trouble. Come here. She came to his side, and he pulled her close, so they could watch the sunrise together. Moments of beauty sustain us through hours of ugliness. Liv watched him as he watched the sunrise. His blue eyes, outside the red halo, of course, looked tired. 
Corvin Danavis had always had the capacity to survive on less sleep than anyone lived knew, so she knew it wasn't the early hour that had him weary. It wasn't the first time she'd seen this look on his face, but she thought it might be the first time she understood it. All those times she'd seen this look, pinching his eyes and squeezing the joy out of her usually jovial father, he was reliving battles. Today, he was preparing to see more men die, and fighting for the very man who'd killed his people in the past, Gavin Guile. It must be tearing him apart. The sun rose in magnificent pinks and oranges mirrored in the waves, and slowly the tension leaked out of her father's eyes. She could see the freckles under his caramel skin around his eyes, and the faint red highlights in his hair were set afire by the sunlight. She'd inherited neither, nor the blue eyes that would have helped her be a more powerful drafter. Corvin's lips moved faintly, mouthing words. He was praying, she realized. Finished, he made the triangle, splaying three fingers, touching his thumb to his right eye, his middle finger to his left eye, and his forefinger to his forehead, the spiritual eye. He completed the gesture by touching mouth, heart, and hands, the three and the four, the perfect seven, sealed to our holum. What you behold, what you believe, how you behave. You came to demand how I can fight for my old enemy. He killed mother. No, Oliviana, he didn't. His people did. Same thing. No, no, this situation is more complicated than you realize. What's that supposed to mean? Don't treat me like I'm a child. I'm, I'm sorry, Oliviana. I have to protect... I'm 17. I've been surviving without your protection for three years. You don't have to protect me anymore. Not protecting you. Protecting others from you. You know who was 17 when he upended the world? Dazen Guile. That's not even close to the same thing. Oliviana, I'm asking you to trust me. I've seen fathers who abuse their position and demand slavish obedience of their children. I've never done that with you, have I? When you wanted to go to the Cromeria and I didn't want you to go. When I told you that I could teach you everything about drafting you needed to know. What happened? You let me go. And it was awful for you there. But you showed me how strong you are. And here you stand. I'm proud of you, Oliviana. You swam with sea demons and survived. But I'm asking you to trust me on this. I'm doing the right thing. I promise. I haven't forgotten about your mother. I haven't forgotten you. She couldn't maintain the eye contact or her righteous indignation in the face of her father's open, honest refusal to be more open and honest. He was standing on his record. And more than anyone, she knew that his record was unimpeachable. She also knew that he wouldn't be moved once he made a decision like this. If she was stubborn, she'd come by it, honestly. <sighs> it was so much easier to admire him when he wasn't making war in our country. I mean, I didn't even think about the war when I was around him. A little infatuated? Ah, uh, maybe a little. <laughs> I'd wonder if you weren't. He is what he is. He really isn't responsible for Mother's death. Responsible? Well, that's tricky. If the Giles hadn't gone to war, would your mother still be alive? Probably. But I... Liv, I can tell you two things. Gavin didn't order or desire your mother's death in any way. And he is utterly and forever besotted with one woman. 
And that's not you. That's three things, isn't it? Uh, you get one free for me, my daughter. What's he doing here? The Prism's men burned the city, killed tens of thousands. He showed no interest in Garriston since then, so what does he want now? Like it didn't matter when no one wanted it, but now that someone does, he can't lose it? There weren't two Guile brothers. There were three. The youngest one, Sebastian, was murdered by a blue-white when Gavin was about 13. Gavin's first purpose is to protect the innocent from color whites. Or, if you want to look at it uncharitably, to kill color whites wherever he finds them. King Haradul is using color whites, or at least the prism believes he is. So he must be stopped. A blue-white? That doesn't make sense. Blues are rational, aren't they? Liv, people talk about breaking the halo like you go instantly mad. Like it says, clean as separation is between living and dying. It's not. Some color whites hold on to something like sanity for weeks or even months. Some are fine during the night, but in light they're fully in the grip of their color. The madness is different every time. A blue can go into a murderous rage. A red can seem calm and philosophical. That's why they're so dangerous. Now, are you going to help me? Fine. What can I do? Do you know how to make Luxon Granados? What? No! What are they teaching you dims at the Cromaria these days? Hey! <laughs> you have your specs? Of course. Good. I could use a yellow. I'm not a very good yellow. I mean... I can't make a solid bright water. That's not what I need. Do you know what happens when you mix red and liquid yellow? Seal it airtight in a blue shell and then shatter it against something? Uh, something good? Boom! You could use superviolet for the shell too, but it makes throwers nervous. Picking up an explosive when you couldn't see whether the shell was intact? Liv could see how that might make someone nervous. Corvin tossed her a blue Luxon ball. She caught it and was surprised that it rattled. She looked closer. The ball had round shot inside it, like small musket balls. <gasps> these... these... Those are what make Grenados kill. That's what we're doing, Oliviana. We're killing people, right here, right now. We're using Orholm's gift to kill Orholm's children, most of whom are fools who could be your friends any other time. It's a hard world. You want me to lie about it? You want to be protected after all? Father, I can't do this. I can't kill Tyrians. Not for the Cromaria, not just because you say so. For a moment, she saw a keen sorrow in her father's eyes. He looked, for the first time she'd ever seen in her whole life. Old. Haggard. Liv, at some point, you have to decide not merely what you're going to believe, but how you're going to believe. Are you going to believe in people or in ideas? or in Orholum, with your heart or with your head? Will you believe what's in front of you or in what you think you know? There are some things you think you know that are lies. I can't tell you what those are, and I'm sorry for that. What did you choose, Father? Ideas or men? Though she had just seen him praying, she knew her father wasn't very religious. That part of him had died with her mother. His prayer had likely been something along the lines of... Well done, sir. This is a beautiful sunset. Her father rejected the idea that Orholum actually cared about individual men or women. Or nations, for that matter. I... 
I can't say. Can't say because you never actually made the choice. How can you lecture me then? But that didn't make sense. Her father was the best man she knew. No, that wasn't it. Her father had lived his life because he believed in certain ideas. That was what had led him to fight against Gavin Guile. To give up everything in that fight. He'd been a man of ideals. Those ideals were what had made him stay away from the Chromeria himself. What had made him oppose his daughter going to the Chromeria. He'd been afraid that she would be corrupted by the Chromeria's lack of ideals. A wise fear, as it turned out. She had been corrupted. She had agreed to spy on Gavin. She was just as bad as everyone else at the Chromeria. But that didn't explain why her father was suddenly fighting for the man he should hate. The ideals hadn't changed. If anything, Gavin being here, fighting Tyrians, should have made her father fight him all the more fiercely. Or Holm. Maybe her father had been corrupted too. Maybe he'd been bought. Maybe he'd sold out his ideals, just like everyone else. Her heart hurt at the very thought. But why else wouldn't he tell her the answer to what was an obvious question? Because it would make his hypocrisy undeniable. The whole swiving Chromeria was corrupt. It defiled everything it touched. Liv had been at the bottom. She'd seen how monochromes were treated. She'd seen how Tyrians were treated. And she'd become part of the power too. She'd become almost a friend to the prism himself. And she'd loved it. Loved talking with a powerful man, basking in his attention. She'd loved the beautiful dresses and being treated as special and worth attention. And to keep her power, she'd sold herself so easily. So easily. But that was how things worked at the Chromeria. It had even corrupted her father. Liv, trust me. I know it's hard, but please. Trust you? When you won't trust me? Livy, please. I love you. You know I wouldn't do anything to hurt you. And then it all became clear, and it took Liv's breath away. How could the prism get her father to betray everything he held dear? Why would her father evade simple questions? Because he loved her. Corvin had been corrupted, but not by money or power or sex. She knew he wouldn't sell his soul so cheaply. So what did the prism have over Corvin? He had Liv. Gavin Guile was using Liv to suborn her father. She didn't know what exactly the threat and the bribe had been, but it didn't matter. Liv was being bribed and threatened exactly the same way, but by the Rathgari. She knew how the game was played now. She had betrayed her principles because she loved Vina. Her father was betraying his principles because he loved Liv. Corvin had chosen that his fealty would be to his family only. That meant Liv. And it meant he couldn't tell her, because if he told her, she'd ruin it and make his sacrifices worthless. Liv's heart broke. She had to clamp down hard on her emotions to keep from bursting into tears. Cruel. So cruel. How could Gavin do such a thing and then smile at her? Because that's how the Chromeria was. Vipers and villains, all of them. And Corvin had done everything he could to try to keep Liv out of the Chromeria, everything short of ordering her not to go, because he wasn't so imperious. It was her fault. Liv swallowed the sudden lump in her throat. Her father had been debased because of her. He deserved better than for her to expose his shame. She smiled as bravely as she could, 
pretending to acquiesce. I understand, Father. I do trust you. Just tell me everything when you can. Fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, I love you, Livy. I know you do, Father. And Gavin Guile was going to pay for turning that love against him. Oh, keep it simple, Kip. You're not being asked to draft a pulley or a skull. One green ball, it's nothing. Kip was sitting cross-legged, green spectacles on, white board in his lap, willing something to happen. He'd been doing this for two hours. And what exactly was he doing? Nothing. How are you supposed to even keep your mind on drafting when nothing happened for hours? His stomach was complaining again. It was constant now as the sun approached noon. No food until I draft. This is cruel. It's torture. It's impossible. Kip looked up. Gavin had brought them only a few hundred paces outside the lover's gate to the ruins of the old outer walls. When they'd arrived, there were already hundreds of men at work. And since then, many of those who'd been stuck in the line that they'd passed had joined them. They were excavating the roots of the wall down to bedrock, which was at least four paces down in the few places Kip could see. The excavation, though, went faster than he would have thought possible. Between the sheer number of men working and the sandy soil, with only thin vegetation on top, Gavin was poring over drawings with Master Danavis. General Danavis, Kip supposed. And the natural manner with which the general commanded men to do this or that, exactly how he told Kip to go do this or that, made Kip wonder why he'd never wondered about Master Danavis before. The man was obviously too big for a little town like Recton, but Kip had never even thought about him. Our children only think about themselves, Kip. It's not good enough. No, the detail's fine. The detail's perfect. But the old wall didn't stop us, so why rebuild something that's faulty? Rebuild the wall? Hadn't Gavin said that King Haradol's army was arriving in four or five days? We'll be lucky if we can get something that's merely faulty. We'll be lucky if we can finish anything at all. Bring me the drawings of Rath Kason. You're seriously going to build a wall based on artist renditions of a mythical city? The muscle in Gavin's jaw twitched with irritation. Understood, Lord Prism. Bring your daughter. I could use a super violet. Of course. The general left, mounting his horse and galloping toward the city, his Rathgari personal guards trailing in his wake. Then, though he'd been speaking non-stop with foremen, Rathgari guards, and General Danavis all morning, Gavin was suddenly alone. He looked over at Kip. Oops, I think I'm supposed to be drafting. Not hungry yet, huh? Thanks for reminding me. Kip, more than any other color, Green can be summarized in one word. All the others require at least a few. A bit of hedging, some qualifiers. Green is wild. Everything both good and bad associated with wild is what green is. That's why I can tell you that you only need will. Because will and wildness go so naturally together. If you were an incipient blue, I'd have to explain the sense of drafting, the harmony, the order, how it fits with the world. That's not you. Any questions? What happened to that gunner? What? The one on the Elysian boat, who nearly killed us. Right before I shot him, his gun blew up. It does happen. You overcharge your shot, the musket can't handle the charge. That gunner, who nearly hit us from 500 paces, he misjudged a musket. Gavin smiled. He turned his palm over. There was nothing in it. Kip tightened his eyes. 
A super-violet ball rested in Gavin's hand. See it? I see it. Gavin extended his hand. <gasps> the super-violet ball streaked out like it was a musket ball itself. I blocked his musket barrel. You can use any color to do it. Yellow only if you can make solid yellow, of course. But pretty much anything else. Why not kill him? I may have. A musket exploding in your hands is no joke. I recognized him. Freelancer doing the war. Sometimes fought for me, sometimes for my brother. Sometimes for any captain that would pay him enough. He's a drunk and a scoundrel, the finest artist of the canon in the Seven Satrapies. Whatever name he was born with, now he's simply known as Gunner. It's everything he is. His first underdeck command as cannoneer was on a ship called the Avid Bariah, the Fire Breather. The Fire Breather? The Fire Breather? Only ship in memory to ever kill a full-grown sea demon. Gunner was maybe 16 years old. I've killed a lot of people, Kip. Sometimes you hesitate, and as bad and as dangerous as that is, I like to think it's proof that I've still got some humanity left. Besides, I knew making his gun blow up in his hands would really infuriate him. If I know Gunner, he made that musket himself, and he's probably wondering who the hell overcharged his precious musket. Gavin glanced over to a richly dressed Rathgari approaching, flanked by guards and slaves, carrying a mobile pavilion to shade the light-skinned man. I'll leave you to your work. You might want to hurry. The servants should be bringing lunch any time. Kip pushed the spectacles up on his nose. They kept slipping down, and they weren't even close to comfortable, and stared at the white board. Wild. Wild. Unbridled. Growing. What? What is this? The Rathgari noble, Kip gathered it was the governor, was complaining to Gavin about something or other, and he stood as if he was going to take his time about it. Kip tried to block him out. Green! Come on! Let's suck up some wildness! Wild! Now there's a word for me, Kip the Wild. I was pretty wild when Ram used to call me Tubby, huh? I was pretty wild when they made me back down over Issa. She'd be alive if I'd been a little wilder. To be wild is the opposite of being controlled, and I've been controlled for my whole life. Controlled by Ram, by Ram, a village tough, a boy, barely a bully. If Kip had told Ram to go to the Evernight, if he had shredded Ram with his tongue, what could Ram have done except beat him? Ram's muscles weren't half a match for Kip's brain. Well, they're not a match for anything now that they're rotting. The thought made Kip queasy. He didn't want Ram dead. There'd been plenty of good things about the boy. A few, anyway. And if Kip didn't feel terrible that Ram was dead, he did wish the boy were alive, so he could face him now. I've talked with Gavin Guile. I sank pirates with him. Well, mostly I tried not to drown while he sank pirates, but still. Kip looked at his hands. Still no Luxon. I'm going to fail Gavin, again, like I failed Issa, like I failed Sanson, like I failed my mother a thousand times. Hunger gnawed Kip's belly. Oh, that's all I am, a fat failure. A new life's been handed to me on a plate. Gavin Guile's son, bastard son, sure, but he hasn't once treated me like an embarrassment, and I can't even summon the will to reach out and take this new life. In return for all the good he's done me, I'm going to humiliate the man who saved my life, who gave me a second chance. It was like bands of iron were being laid across his chest. Now they tightened, tightened, 
His eyes welled with tears. Baby! Failure! Disappointment! His mother's face, twisted, dangerously high from smoking ratweed laced with ergot. You ruined my life! You're the worst mistake I ever made! I gave everything and you took it all and gave me nothing! You make me sick, Kip! Kip, you can throw off those chains. Stop believing those... Lies! Kip's skin was tingling. The sun was nearly at its zenith, or Holem's eye pressed down on the land like a physical weight. But to Kip, it was a caress. Energy, warmth, love, light in dark corners. He looked at the white board, and in the green filtered through his spectacles, he saw one face of Orholem. Kip wouldn't call it wildness. It was freedom. He wanted to shout, dance for joy, to help with what anyone thought. There was freedom from all of that, and freedom from the prison of his own head. Freedom from the nagging voices of doubt, from the running commentary about everything he saw and did. It was action, and it was as powerful as a redwood springing up in the cracks of a boulder. Life would win. The roots would reach and heave and strain. Kip could feel those bands of iron around his chest burst asunder. He felt more alive than he had in his whole life. An animal's strength and joy. So, this is what they mean by wild. Kip drew a ball of green luxon into his hand. Just like that? Just by deciding to do it? It seemed too easy. The ball was thick, dense, but flexible to his squeezing fingers. Kip made it bigger, hollow, about twice the size of his own head. Now the flexibility was exaggerated, soft enough, but it wasn't going to kill anyone. With the biggest grin on his face, Kip held it in his palms. How had Gavin shot out Luxon? Kip had seen Iron Fist do it too. He wrinkled his nose. Maybe I just will it. A tiny part of his mind was protesting. You can't assault the governor. He's the governor for Oholem's sake. You think his bodyguards are going to appreciate that you don't really mean to hurt him? But in the grip of green, words like governor were blood of meaning. What was that? What was the difference? The trappings of human rituals and human titles seemed artificial, thin. Kip willed the ball to shoot out of his hands. Still seated, grinning like a fool, he could feel energy coiling up behind the ball. How long did he let that build before he let it go? Oh well, that felt like long enough. Still seated on the ground, Kip was blasted ass over elbows. Kip looked to see what had happened to the yapping man. The governor was laid out, and apparently the green Luxon ball had bounced around some because the palanquin was collapsing, two of the slaves tumbling away from it. The palanquin dropped right on top of the governor. Suddenly, one of the bodyguards charged Kip, sword out. Spectacles askew, Kip couldn't draw any more green, but he still had a good amount in his body. He began drawing another, smaller ball. Uh, I'm 
Too slow! Too slow! The air shimmered between him and the swordsman as he raised his hands. A wall of blue Luxon unfurled between Kip and the swordsman in the blink of an eye. The swordsman's sword struck the blue wall in mid-lunge toward the kneeling boy. The blade was forced downward. The swordsman himself smacked bodily into the blue a split second later. The swordsman recovered, then stopped. The blue Luxon right in front of his face was cracked from Kip's shot. Spiderweb centered where his head would have been. A musket ball-sized crater in the blue Luxon. Enough! Gavin's blue wall had saved both of them. Oh shit! What did I just do? How dare you! How dare you! You impudent! The governor was pulled from the fallen palanquin by two of his bodyguards. He stood, nose bleeding, face flushed from embarrassment, rapidly giving way to rage, and stormed over to Gavin. Your slave has assaulted me! I demand satisfaction! That's no slave. Kip is my natural son. This, this is your bastard! Kip, apologize. I, I, I'm terribly sorry, sir. I was practicing drafting for the first time. I really didn't know what I was... Apology? No, Lord Prism. First you assault me, and now this outrage? I demand satisfaction. You'll demand nothing. You're corrupt, if not treasonous, Governor Krasos. You've been colluding with King Haradul, and if I can find just a little more evidence of it, I swear when you return to Rufgar, your head will have a pike waiting for it. Unless Satrapa Tolos decides to hand you over to the Pereans instead. You're incompetent, contemptible, a liar, a thief, and a coward. If you want satisfaction, you can duel with me, sword to sword. On my word of honor, I won't draft, but we'll do it right now. The governor blinked, and the sword point trembled. He blinked again, sheathed his blade. <clears throat> I'll leave brawling with swords to the benighted. He turned on his heel, storming off. Kip became aware that someone was right behind him. He turned and saw Iron Fist looming over him. How long have you been there? Long enough to protect you from your foolishness, if not long enough to stop it. I wasn't aware you had your family's knack for getting into trouble in the blink of an eye. Oh. The blue wall had been Iron Fist's. Was that twice over now that Kip owed his life to the huge Blackguard? Commander, I need you to go speak with our spies. Crassus is rattled. He may run. Make sure the crews manning the cannons at the harbor's entrance are men who will obey the order to fire if it comes to that. And that he doesn't plunder the treasury. I need to be able to pay our army. I prefer not to leave Kip. I'm a Blackguard, Lord Prism, not a messenger. My duty is here. I can't do it. Kip can't do it. It needs doing. This is my fault for forbidding you to bring more blackguards, but the point remains. Very well, Lord Prism. Iron Fist bowed and headed for the horses someone had brought for them. When he had gone, there was a conspicuous silence. Dozens of workmen had seen what had happened, and humiliating the governor had clearly earned Gavin some goodwill, but no one appeared to want to come close either, lest Gavin was angry. Gavin rubbed his forehead. You're probably wondering why we're going to fight a war for assholes like that governor. Actually, the thought hadn't occurred to Kip, but now that Gavin brought it up, it did seem odd. Because Ras Karadul had the stench of a fanatic, Kip. That's all. Hundreds. Or if we're unlucky, thousands of people will die because I met Rask for a few minutes and I thought he was crazy. 
He wants this city, and honestly, he's got a right to. If I could simply give this city back to Tyria's people, I would. They deserve it. They... You have paid too high of a price for a war in which they took the only side they could. If there were anyone else who would take over after we'd left, I'd do it and damn the Spectrum. But with Rask in power, it's a little more complicated than that. Of course, that's why I'm here, and my presence is what will make this a near thing. If we left, Rask would march in unopposed, close the harbor before the Perians could land, and that would pretty much be the end of it. The Perians would be furious, but the prophets here aren't so great that they want to march an army here. Eventually, Rask would offer an exclusive shipping contract on all the citrus from Garriston for a few years, and they'd take it. What do you think? Is it worth it? I think King Haradul should die, and save us all this trouble. <laughs> if only. Maybe Karis will work a miracle and do just that. You really miss her, don't you? <sighs> that obvious, huh? You think they'll kill her? She'll live until Rask sees if I'll trade the city for her. Then he'll kill her. Either way. No. No, they won't. I swear it. The empty feeling in Kip's stomach didn't go away when they served lunch. Gavin and General Danibus, even though it was weird to think of him as General Danibus rather than Master Danibus, it was too weird for Kip to think of him as just Corvin, and even Liv were poring over the drawings and plans with architects and artists while they ate. Kip sat to one side out of the way. He had no idea what they were doing, and space around the table was limited. He ate fresh oranges with gusto and tore into the intriguing spiced fresh javelina. It tasted amazing, but even he couldn't keep his mind on food for long. I'd ask if you're serious, but you have that look. The problem isn't the drafting. I can handle that much Luxon easily. Easily? Fine, not easily, but I can do it. The problem is the weight. I can't lift this much, much less throw it into place. Oliviana? Please, live. How about this? Liv drafted something onto the table. It was, of course, super violet, and thus invisible to most people. General Danavis scowled. Apparently, most people included him. Sorry, Father, I can't control yellow enough to make models with it. Kip tried to see what she drafted, but the table was obscured by bodies. <laughs> It looks ridiculous, but it'll work. Perfect. Fine. What do our architects think of the design? For a moment, Kip thought Gavin was being pretty rude. Obviously, General Danibus and everyone else around the table was curious about what Liv had designed. But this was Gavin as leader. All the rest of them didn't need to know, and there was work to be done. He understood the solution to the problem, and that was all that was necessary. On to the next problem. Which is what I should be doing. Kip had finished lunch. He could now draft a little bit, and on purpose. He knew what he had to do. My Lord Prism, none of us has ever built a wall of this magnitude. Or, or, or a wall at all, to tell the truth. But these old drawings you've shown us of Ravkason are clearly flawed. Too much fantasy, not enough function. This empty desert doesn't have enough function. Tell me what we need to do to fix it. I need to start building now, today. Uh, mm. here. The architect drew a line with his finger. This interior passage isn't wide enough. You're going to have men rushing back and forth in armor, with guns, cannons being rolled into position or replaced for repair. 
This passage must be wide enough for men to run past each other and past carts or cannons. How wide? I'd say, uh... He held his fingers apart on the drawing. For all Holm's sake, write on it! Sir, those drawings are hundreds of years old. Priceless relics are... Priceless is being alive next week. Continue. Kip didn't know why he'd been so slow, but it only dawned on him now that Gavin was seriously planning on building a wall here. Before King Haradol's army arrived. In four days. Oh, maybe because it's impossible. Of course, crossing the Cerulean Sea in a morning was impossible too. But seriously, did Gavin mean to draft the entire thing by himself? Kip didn't know all that much about drafting, and how much a drafter could safely use in a day, but the mere fact that the world wasn't bursting with Luxon buildings and bridges and walls told him that it had to be incredibly difficult. In fact, the only Luxon buildings he'd seen had been at the Chromaria, and he had to guess that the Seven Towers had been the product of a huge collaborative effort. The architect, a squinting little man, after puffing out his cheeks a number of times, deep in thought, began drawing quickly. The cutouts on these murder holes don't give sufficient range of fire. If you modify the top of the wall like this, scaling ladders won't be able to hook onto the wall, at least not as easily. A railing on the back, like so, will save more of your own men from falling off the wall than theirs. There's no place in these drawings for taking the wounded. I think you could incorporate that here. If you can set sleds like this right into the wall of the interior passage, it'll be easier to move materiel around. There are also no lantern hooks in this plan. Your wall will be entirely dark if you don't fix this. You'll need cranes here, here, and here to lift supplies. You've never built a wall before, huh? I have studied a few. How much am I paying you? Uh, nothing yet, Lord Prism. Well, double it! The architect looked befuddled, obviously doing the arithmetic and not liking the result, but not wanting to call the Prism himself out on it. He's joking. Oh! <laughs> the man looked relieved. Then Kip could see the question cross his face. Joking about giving me nothing, or joking about giving me more for doing a good job? Keep working. This man here will take notes. I'm going to go lay the foundation. He means that metaphorically, right? Oh, our prism's a bear for metaphors. Huh? Kip stood, feeling heartsick. Now was going to be as good of a chance to escape as he was going to get. Kip! Everyone's eye was drawn to Kip. Kip felt a surge of panic and embarrassment at having been caught so easily. Well done today. It's not many boys who can draft consciously on their first day of trial. A flush of pleasure went through Kip, only doubled by the impressed look that flitted over Liv's face. Liv! I want you to make models. Lay out the curvature of the halls, widths for the top of the wall, whatever the architect tells you. Yes, Lord Prism! Now or never. If Kip waited, Iron Fist would be back, shadowing him wherever he went. Kip looked at General Danavis, head down, making suggestions, Liv listening intently, and finally at Gavin. These were the only people in the world who meant anything to him, and incredibly, they accepted him. Tolerated him, anyway. With them, for the first time in his life, he felt like he was part of something. Kip turned his back and walked toward the city.
Lightbringer Trilogy, Book 1, The Black Prism, Part 2, is a graphic audio production. Copyright 2010, Brent Weeks. Published by Arrangement with Hachette Book Group, Incorporated. All rights reserved. Production copyright 2010, The Cutting Corporation. All rights reserved. With performances by Joe Brack, Christopher Sheeran, Kimberly Gilbert, Karen Novak, Lily David, Barbara Klein, Andy Clemens, David Coyne, Stephen Carpenter, Drew Kopis, Eric Messner, Elizabeth Jernigan, Ken Jackson, Jeff Allen, Tim Getman, Dylan Lynch, Yasmin Twazon, Terence Aselford, Michael John Casey, Scott McCormick, Michael Glenn, Nanette Savard, Ren Casey, Colleen Delaney, Mort Shelby, and James Lewis. Adapted and directed by Johann Detweiler. Produced by Richard Rowan and Wayne Beeman. Executive producers James Cutting, Mary Cutting, and Angie Cornette. Dialogue editing at Graphic Audio Sound Design by Johann Detweiler. Featuring original music composed and performed by Dan Smith and Johann Detweiler. If you enjoyed the Lightbringer trilogy, be sure to look for R.A. Salvatore's Demon Wars Saga. Available now in Graphic Audio at Roadstops Everywhere at 1-800-670-5220 or at www.graphicaudio.net. Available now in graphic audio. Tell you what, darling, why don't me and you go on up and join my brother and that big old gal he's with? I never thought you'd ask. I was beginning to think you didn't like me. Now, how about getting a bottle to take up with us? Never mind the bottle, miss. We won't be needing it. None of them will. Who do you mean I'll not be needing me a bottle of whiskey? You won't be needing it because you'll either be going back to McAllister with me to stand trial for bank robbery and murder, or you'll be dead. <laughs> oh, you're a funny man, mister. <laughs> you give me a good laugh. Oh, so what makes you think we held up a bank in McAllister, huh? Where is McAllister, anyway? There ain't none of us ever even been there. Oh, you've been there, all right. I know that because I trailed the five of you from there to here. Who the hell are you anyway? The name is Falcon McAllister. You take your guns out of your holsters and put them on the floor. I would call that bold talk for someone who's not only outnumbered four to one, but who ain't even holding a pistol. I'll tell you right now, the only way my gun is coming out of my holster is when I pull it to kill you. Now, boys! <laughs> <laughs> Good God, I seen it, but I ain't believing it. Are they dead? They're all dead. How do you know they're all dead? Because I didn't have time not to kill them. Uh, Mr. Hanlon, I'm surprised at you paying good money for a map like this. Where did you buy this? I didn't buy it nowhere. I drove that there map my own self. Tells you exactly where the gold is. You're telling me you know where the gold is? Yes, sir, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Do you have any proof that you found the mine? I mean, other than this map. Oh, yes, sir, I got me some proof. These here nuggets I took from the mine. 
And there's a lot more where these came from. This... this is gold. This is real gold. Well, yes, sir, that's what I've been trying to tell you all along. Is it true? Is it true that the old coot had a map to a gold mine? I don't know. Why are you asking? Because if the map is real, I know where it is. Where is this big vein of gold that's supposed to be in here? Well, there. It's not a vein of gold, but <laughs> it is gold. It looks like Mr. Hanlon already gathered it up. Did he dig them out of this cave? Where did they come from? Not here. They were mined somewhere else and moved here. I have a conf- oh! Get down! Callister! How's it feel to know you're about to die? Mr. McAllister! Mr. McAllister, you alright? Don't miss Eagles 15. Slaughter of Eagles. Available now in graphic audio. Graphic Audio presents E.E. Knight's Vampire Earth. Dave, no, no, wait! Wait! This is not what you think! You think I wanted this? You remember how it was? We got separated. The Reapers were after us. One got me, picked me up. They took me all the way back to Mississippi. After questioning, it was it was join them or die. Never really joined, though. Never, never really joined. That's why I ended up in this rear area pisser. Didn't want to fight against y'all. You have to believe me. I, I met a girl, got married. We've talked about running. Every chance we get alone, we discuss it. Lois wants out. You could have contacted me in the bar then, quietly. What did you run for? I, 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 I got scared. Looked to me like you were running for help. Would have let you go another time. But what I'm here to do is just too damn important. My David, I began to worry when you did not arrive by the time we darkened the ship. I feared something might have happened to you, and I made for the station rooms. Is all well? Yes and no, old horse. Someone recognized me tonight in a bar. He's dead. But unless his men were born stupid and got worse, they'll be looking for me. We're gonna have to set off with the dawn, before the Kurians can organize a manhunt. I'm gonna try to turn the crew. <laughs> Maybe a few brave hearts will try. Not enough, my David. Not enough. All hands! All hands! This is the captain speaking. Captain Rowan of the Marines, Lieutenant Post, the Grogs, and an unknown number of others are attempting to mutiny. They are to be shot on sight. Halt! What the hell happened? Where did Dortman come from? One of the ship's boys overheard something and went to the exec. We gotta get to the grogs. What's the being back here? Hello? If you're looking for the people yelling for help, you found them. Hello, back. This ship is in the hands of the Commodore's flotilla of Jayport, Jamaica. I offer you a chance of surrender with fair treatment. Surrender might not be the right word, but we won't trouble you. My name is Valentine, out of Southern Command in the Ozarks. You are a long way from Mountain Home, Valentine. 
My name is Karaska, First Lieutenant of the Rigel. The Spectre has it pretty good. He's about as secure in his position as he could be. Lives on a sort of a state. In a castle, no less. He's got informants everywhere. Even within my palisade, I expect. Kind of reminds me of a web with a fat spider sitting in the center of it, sensitive to vibrations at the edges. We try to enter the web, we get stuck. And there's not enough of us to get to him, even with the guns we've been stealing and stockpiling. Sir? I'll take your analogy about the web one step further. His organization also has the weakness of a spider's web. What's that? If you kill the spider, the web falls apart in a matter of days. If I can get rid of the specter, break his hold on the island, would you return the ship and crew to take me to Haiti and back to the coast? Afterwards, you could keep her. I'm sure you'd find her useful. Valentine, if you can do this, I'll give you the ship and a team of men who will sail with you across hell's lava ocean in a powder hulk. No fear. And that's what I'm counting on. No fear. Keep Haitian is ahead. What is the plan? The plan is to sail into the port as bold as if we have the proverbial balls of the brass monkey. We have a contact in town who will get in touch with me. He's on lookout for a ship from the north. Not sure what happens after that. Maybe we pull out and land somewhere nearby on the coast, and he gets in touch with the resistance. They load us up, and back we go. Will it be that easy? <laughs> Somehow I doubt it. Available now in Graphic Audio. If you can't find that Graphic Audio title you're looking for, go to www.graphicaudio.net where you can order it in CD format or digital download. If you're on the road, call 1-800-670-5220. That's 1-800-670-5220. Or www.graphicaudio.net. And if you're looking for a great way to try out a different graphic audio series, check out our convenient and easy-to-store long-haul box sets, which contain up to five books of a series. Available only at www.graphicaudio.net. Be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter or follow us on Twitter. Twitter.